So again, good morning. This morning we continue in the book of Genesis, and you can turn with me to chapter 14. In chapter 14, we continue to look at the life of Abram, who will soon be renamed Abraham. But Abram has been through a number of different challenges, all of them challenges to his faith, starting with being called out of the worldly area of Ur of the Chaldeans in what is called Babylon, spent some time in a city with his family in Haran, ultimately called out to go to the promised land. A couple of challenges, including going to Egypt when there was a famine, making his way back after God graciously delivered him from some very bad decisions that we studied together. Uh, and now he finds himself living in the promised land, which is a good thing. Uh, before the time that Abraham decided to primarily live in the mountains of Israel, uh, he and his nephew Lot separated ways. And Lot had been very successful as well, and so he ventured into what at that time was a very fertile area around the area of the Dead Sea. And uh, at the time, it was a very wealthy area with a number of cities, five cities, called the Cities of the Plains, and Sodom, Gomorrah, Abna, Zeboim, and Zoar, or Bella, it's also called, I think it's called Bella. Uh, those, those cities were, in fact, very wealthy and doing very, very well, prosperous cities, but uh, they were very worldly cities. And as we'll see in future studies, and even this, this morning, we'll see that, it, in fact, is a decision that Lot made to go in the direction of the world and to live in an area of worldliness and wickedness. Now, he himself maybe not so wicked, but he was very willing to compromise and live among people who were wicked. There are two sides to that. We live among a very wicked people, and that's necessary for us to shine our light and our testimony. And uh, I think you need to be wherever God has called you to be, right? Uh, you can make a case, well, you know, we're in a blue state, we should all leave, and move to South Carolina or some red state where we'll all be better off and live in Christian Disneyland. I can make that case. And some people have been called over the last couple of years. Uh, We've prayed for them. Families who've gone to Pennsylvania or other parts of New Jersey, Missouri, I think I remember too, Uh, Florida, North Carolina. There are people that moved out of the area as the Lord led them. But it's important to remember, we're also called to shine our light. And so for me, I'm called to be here. Obviously, you are as well. So we are in this very wicked environment. I say wicked environment. I mean the world system around us, the things that are being taught in our schools, the things that are promoted by our governor and the, and the state government, uh, the things that are being embraced in our culture. How do we deal with that? I think it's important to realize that it's not all bad news to be among the wicked, but it's not all good news either. And so you have to be very careful, and we'll talk about some of those things today and then into future studies. But Lot decided to go and to live among the cities of the plains. And first he pitched his tent toward Sodom, and we're going to see he ultimately ends up getting swept up in some of the problems they encountered. Finally, we see him living in the city when the city's about to be destroyed. And then it doesn't get better from there. So this morning, we want to consider... Uh, the account in chapter 14. But we also want to ask our own hearts. We want to look inside, sort of examine ourselves and, and ask the question, are we where we're supposed to be? Like Lot, are we, are, are we among a wicked people? Are we making a difference? Or are we being influenced by the wickedness around us and, uh, and perhaps suffering because of it? Because there are lots of people that stay a little too close and a little too entrenched in the culture. And as a result, they suffer with the culture. 
And that's not God's intent for anyone who loves him and uh, belongs to him. But then we're also going to see that God is gracious and merciful and that he delivers us from those situations every time we get ourselves into them, which is a continuing theme in the book of Genesis, in particular in the life of Abram. So with that as an introduction, let's begin by praying and asking the Lord to speak to our hearts this morning. Lord, Heavenly Father, we ask that you would do that very thing. We want to learn about Abram. We want to understand and study the book of Genesis, but we also want to apply your word to our hearts. We want to learn and glean from your word that we might be called out of places like Sodom, at least in our hearts, that our lives might not be tainted with the stain of the wickedness of this world. But Lord, we also want to be able to reach into the fire, hating even the garment stained by the flesh, as Jude says. We want to be able to know that we can make a difference in the culture, and for that we need to be engaged with the culture. But it's a fine line, and we ask for your wisdom to draw it. And we also ask that you'd show us, Lord, that you are with us in every moment of every trial, and you desire to be worshipped, and you desire to bless us. And so we ask that you would do that very thing today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's start by reading what is not the the most terribly exciting portion of Scripture, but very helpful in understanding what is really the the, the theme today. In chapter 14, in verse 1, we read that, At this time, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Kedoleomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, went to war against... Bera, king of Sodom, uh, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these kings, or latter kings, joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the valley around the Salt Sea. At that time, it was not the Dead Sea, but it later became the Dead Sea, so they're referring to it as the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea. Uh, for 12 years, they had been subject to Ketulamer, <clears throat> but in the 13th year, they rebelled. And in the 14th year, Ketelamer, with the kings allied with him, went out and defeated the Rephaites. And we'll talk a little bit about them today. In Ashtoreth, Carnaim and the Zuzites in Ham, and the Emites in Shavakiriathim, and the Horites in the hill country of Sarir, uh, as far as El Paran, near the desert. And then they turned back and went to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh. And they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites who were living in Hazazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Siddim against Kedoleomer, king of Elam, and the other kings that I've already mentioned that I'm not going to read again. Four kings against five, in verse 9. Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and uh, the rest fled to the hills. And the four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. So now we learn that he had gone from pitching his tents toward Sodom to living in the city. And so we're told in these 12 verses, we're told that there was a military campaign on the part of these four kings against the five, and the five had been subject to the the, the, the King Kedileomer, and, and there's a sort of political thing that happens. Um, it is a war of sorts, more of <coughs> a military oppression, an occupation. 
And so you have an alliance of five kings rebelled against an alliance of four. Four kings were from the east, and their names were mentioned, but essentially they're from Babylon and Samaria, Persia. Uh, They're from very far east from where the area that Abraham was living in at that time. And then there are five kings. They're from from the fertile, disc-shaped area north of the now Dead Sea. At the time, it was not. And there were the kings. These were the kings of the five cities in in the well-watered plain of the Jordan. So so there you have it, and their names were mentioned. Uh, They gathered in the Valley of of Siddim. And by the way, in Hebrew, the Valley of Siddim means cultivated fields. So it's very important to note that just like the world before the flood changed and just like the world changed greatly after the Tower of Babel in terms of uh, the culture and where people lived, uh, what happens localized to this area changes that area forever. So that today there's a Dead Sea and an area that is like a desert. It's, it's not the kind of place you'd want to spend any time. But at the time, it was a great place to be. And this explains why Lot was living there and why these cities were there. And so they gathered in this area of what is called the area of cultivated fields, a valley, a very fertile valley, uh, that supported five cities. So think about how fertile that valley must have been. Uh, The now Dead Sea was still a freshwater remnant of the Great Flood of that time. And so still a great place to be, plenty of water, plenty of rich soil. And the reason it's called the Salt Sea is because Moses is writing this He's compiling the information, reflecting back on history. So you will see some anachronistic, that is, some things that are mentioned that seem out of time. It happens with the names of cities. It sometimes happens uh, with the names of geographic landmarks. And that's because, for example, if I were telling you uh, an account of General George Washington in the New Jersey area, and I said that, you know, he was in Jockey Hollow in Morristown or whatever, and I said, you know, that's... Uh, and I referred to the area as west of Route 10 or south of Route 10 and west of 287. You'd understand where it was, but clearly Route 10 and Route 287 did not exist at the time of General George Washington. So you see, sometimes when someone is recounting history, they will mention things that don't really make sense for the time period, but it's because of when they're writing it. There are some people that look at this and they say, oh, you see, the Bible was written so much later. Well, in the case of the book of Genesis, clearly it was, it was compiled later by Moses. There's no doubt about that. And so a lot of the references, geographic, city names, those types of things, will use the modern names so that the people who are reading it know where this place was. Okay, so that's the idea there. Uh, they had been subject, these kings, to Kedolaimer, king of Elam, for 12 years before they rebelled. By, by the way, Elam uh, today is modern Persia or Iran. Okay, so you have Babylon and Iran to the east, so very little has changed. You, you have people in the Middle East being impacted by people somewhat to the east as well in the area of Persia. Uh, why is it that the more things change, the more they stay the same? But the conquest of the four kings led by this man, the king of Elam, uh, started with a conquering of the giants in the land of Canaan. Now, there's a lot of confusion about this, and there's a book that, many books actually, that have been written that would suggest to you that the giants that lived on the earth pre-flood, which were destroyed in the flood, which we've talked about, the Nephilim, the fallen ones, somehow survived the flood, or that the bloodlines of Noah's sons or perhaps daughter-in-laws were somehow corrupted with this genetic anomaly that made these 
offspring of angels and men, very large and so, very, very giant, that that somehow made its way past the flood and into the human gene pool. And so as a result, you have giants in the land. Now, that's what the people thought. And they often would suggest that there were giants in the land. But that doesn't mean it was true. And in fact, I would suggest it's not true. After all, God destroyed the flood, uh, used the flood to destroy the earth because of these giants in the land and wiped them out. So what sense would it make to allow that gene pool to continue, especially given the fact that he destroyed all the people on the earth other than eight? So I think that's just kind of silly, but okay, having said that, who were these giants? Now, there were these giants in the land. We know this because years later, David defeats Goliath, and David's mighty men defeat his brothers. So there are giants in the land. Uh, When the children of Israel come into the land, there's Og and Bashan. There are giants in the land. There are those who are in the land that are giants. People see these really large people, and they suggest, well, you see, it's the Nephilim. But they weren't the Nephilim. If they were the Nephilim, could they have defeated them? Think about it for a minute. So you see, obviously, things have a way of becoming legendary, and people have a way of exaggerating the truth. Enough for that. Who were the Rephaites? Well, they were as tall as the Anakites, according to Deuteronomy. Uh, The Zuzites, they may be called the Zuzites here, later the Zamzumites. They were Rephaites. And these Rephaites were a a large, uh, a group of very large, very tall, enormous people by comparison to the other people living in the land. Now, they, they, their, their stature may have been exaggerated, but we know that Goliath was probably like 12 or 13 feet, uh, depending on how you measure someone. But, but, but think about this. Think about this. Today, in our world, anthropologically speaking, there are people that are very small. Uh, they're sometimes referred to as the pygmies, and you know, that's a word that's been used negatively, but it, it did describe a group of people, or does describe a group of people that are very small. Uh, Joe, Pastor Joe, and, and, and his wife Andrea, and others who have been to Guatemala, will remember when we spend the time in Guatemala City, there are many different people groups there, uh, Mayans, and other uh, native indigenous people, and they're very, very distinctive. You do not confuse them with the Spanish population so much. I mean, the, the Spanish population has uh, intermingled with these Indian groups to some degree. But there are groups that they still speak their native language. Uh, they're descended, again, from Mayans. And they're incredibly small. They're tiny, tiny little people. And not in a way where they're suffering some genetic anomaly, like dwarfism. They're, no, they're just really, really small. So I posit if it's possible to see within the human population that there are people that are very, very small, is it also possible that at one time there were people that were very, very large? Clearly, it is. And if you don't believe that, uh, you can speak to uh, Laura Donna. She's a vet. She'll tell you dogs go from being very, very little, like a Yorkie or a Silkie, to I think you guys are particularly fond of Great Danes, right? Isn't this true? Uh, Which are basically small horses, right? So how is that possible? It's genetics. And so for whatever reason, at this time, or at that time, genetically speaking, there were people who were very large, okay? And I mean, I mean not just tall, but very large. And uh, there were the Emites. They were Rephaites as well. Uh, the Hurites or Hurrians, they used to live in Seir. All of these people are mentioned. And sometimes the scriptures will refer to the Rephaites and, and equate them with, like, evil spirits and stuff. But that's, that's more or less 
superstition. So there were these very large people. They were giant men. They're not the offspring of angels, but they were giant men. The point is that this alliance of kings came in and defeated them. So right away you know, does it make any sense that they were somehow some supernatural beings? No. They were just very large, but they were defeated. These kings were very powerful. That's the point. They conquered the territory of the Amalekites and the Amorites, uh, probably descended from Amalek, the, 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 the grandson of Esau. And you're thinking, well, Esau wasn't born yet. Well, again, they're talking about a group of people that were living in that area even though the Amalekites or Amalek hadn't really been born yet. Again, describing people in a way that you might say, well, the the early inhabitants of the United States of America in the 1600s or 1700s, well, the United States of America didn't exist, but you use language so that you can communicate. Uh, Esau was the grandson of Abram, the son of Isaac, the brother of Jacob, and the Amalekites later inhabited the area west of the Dead Sea. It becomes the Dead Sea. And so again, Moses giving us more information so we can follow. The Amorites, by the way, were probably the dominant tribe in Canaan at that time. So the, the most powerful peoples, giants, dominant tribes in Canaan are defeated by this alliance of kings. The point is, they were a force to be reckoned with. All right? So they get into this, this battle with the five kings of the plains. Uh, they offer this resistance, and they're defeated by the four kings. And it says some of the men fell into the tar pits in the valley of Siddim. Now that's interesting because you have a cultivated field, but you have these tar pits. I don't know if you've ever been to L.A. La Brea has tar pits. They're still there today. Uh, In that area, there are these these geological anomalies or or formations, and you have this tar, and and many times they find uh, ancient animals and the, the fossils in these tar pits and around them. But... Not a place you want to fall into. In fact, I would say that it's probably the pits. Just making sure you're still awake. Well, they spoiled the cities of the plains, captured Lot and many others, and Lot settled his household, or had settled his household, in or near this wicked city of Sodom. Again, Lot's first step toward actually living in the city. Now he's suffering the same fate as the wicked men of Sodom. A warning to myself, to you, to all of us. If you get too connected, and we need to be connected, but if you get too connected to the culture, and we're all guilty of it, right? You get too connected to the culture, the morals of the the day in which we live. Uh, When things go south, you're going to suffer the consequences that that culture brings upon itself. Sadly, in our nation today, many of us are suffering the consequences of wicked people's decisions who govern us, right? I mean, does anyone here like inflation? No. I, I think we were, we were ordering something. It was a supplement online, and we hadn't ordered it in like a while, I guess maybe a year or so. And uh, it went from, I think, around $15 to around $30. Is that inflation? I think so. Uh, the price of gas fluctuates. They manipulate some of these things for their own political reasons, but anyone who walks into a supermarket today knows food is really expensive by comparison to a couple years ago. Amen? So we don't like that. We didn't ask for it. We have done nothing to make that happen, but we suffer the consequences of wicked people. Now, what are our choices? For a while, there were a lot of people saying, you know, you need to move to Belize. I didn't even know where Belize was for many years. 
It's down here toward Guatemala on the eastern side of Central America. It's supposed to be a lovely place, and a lot of Americans who have a lot of money go down there and they buy property. And they think, well, you've got to move to Belize, you know, put all your money offshore, and escape this wicked world. Um, you know, you, know you, can, you can look at life that way, uh, but I think you really need to pray through whether or not we're supposed to abandon the culture, but you don't have to pray about whether or not you should embrace the culture. So how do you walk this fine line between not abandoning the culture but not embracing the culture? It's a tightrope. And and we have a tendency to go back and forth sometimes. You know, we're watching television shows we shouldn't, and then we stop. Uh, we, we, We reject, you know, maybe even going to the movies. And then they come out with a movie that's a godly movie, and so we move back. It's like we, we, we kind of try to live in this world and not be of it. That is incredibly difficult. Lot didn't do such a good job. Abraham was more separated, but it's tough, isn't it, living in this world? We're called to be in the world, but yet we have these challenges to our faith. And I have never figured out the perfect balance between being in the world and uh, being of the world. I, I, I think you have to know your word and you have to apply it to your heart and you have to be in fellowship and connected to people who can hold you accountable and in being in worship so God can speak to your heart. But let me give you a little tip. Take it or leave it. You ready? Don't be that for someone else. God did not call you to be the Holy Spirit. So be very careful. People get themselves in trouble when they try to be the Holy Spirit and tell other people how worldly they should or shouldn't be. Now clearly there's some things that are sinful. But it's a very gray area in our culture today, and I know people that are deeply ensconced in the world. And I am not to judge them. No one is to judge another man's servant. I spend a lot of time now, and I actually prayed for opportunity to do this, with people that are are ungodly, the people who, who, quite frankly, don't know the Lord, and maybe live very different lives than me. Maybe even have a, an email address at, you know, Sodom.com, you know? Maybe, maybe they live in that world. And, 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 and quite frankly, it's hard sometimes because I, I have to balance that. But I'm grateful for the opportunity I have to influence them for good. And as long as it's not quenching my spirit, as long as I'm not grieved, I'd like to continue to be in their lives to influence them for good. But it is a struggle, and it is a balance that I must preserve, and you too. Amen? So that's very important to know that it's not a simple black and white. We're leaving the world. Christians shouldn't, you know, no longer engage with anybody who isn't a Christian. That's never worked out well, and it's not how we were designed to live. Okay, so back to our account here. Abram gets involved, and sometimes we do need to get involved in helping those in the world who have suffered the consequences of the world, and even Christians who have gotten dangerously close to the fires that burn in the world. So here's what happens. Abram defeats this alliance. And I'm going to suggest to you some of the ways he did that. Verses 13 through 16 of chapter 14 tell us that one who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, uh, a brother of Eshcol and Ener, all of whom were allied with Abram. And when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And that's in the north. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. And he recovered all the goods 
and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. This is a pretty amazing feat on his part, and there are reasons why he was successful. When you think about this, though, these four kings come from the area of Persia and Babylon. They come into the Middle East. They attack the giants. They attack the dominant tribes in the region. Did they suffer losses? I'm sure they did. You see, why were they heading back home? At this point, they had accomplished their goal, but I'm sure that in the process of conquering these giants and these uh, dominant tribes, they had suffered great casualties, number one. Okay, so then they, they get there, and with the tar pits and people getting stuck and everything, they're able to conquer the cities of the plains. And at this point, they take all of the captives and the loot, if you will. They take the food. They take what they need to compensate them for their military campaign. And now they're heading home because guess what? They're done. And they're probably greatly reduced in number and force. They probably have injured. There's probably a number of casualties that they suffered along the way. So many casualties, I'm sure. So now they're on their way back, and they're not thinking that anyone's going to offer any kind of resistance. And Abram comes up with a plan. I doubt very much that he would have grabbed 318 people on a suicide mission. More than likely, he realized that they were on the run, trying to head home, uh, traveling with wounded, traveling with supplies, uh, that he, if he caught up with them in a, in a surprise attack, he could probably rout them and free the, the, the uh, hostages or free the prisoners. And so that's the plan, and he does, and he does a great job with it. Now, they weren't great warriors, but given the conditions that I've just explained, it's not surprising that Abraham, who was still living uh, near the great trees of Mamre and Ebron, um, It's no surprise that he routed the four kings, recovered the goods, and rescued the people. They caught up with these uh, kings and and the the prisoners and all those who were traveling north in an area that is now called, at least at the time uh, that people were reading this, uh, Dan in the north, but it wasn't called Dan at the time again. It actually wasn't called Dan until much later. But uh, at the time, I think it was called Lud. I think that might have been what it was called, but here again we're getting a modern name to help us to understand uh, where that was. But they caught them by surprise and they chased them. They got them on the run and they chased them as far far north as Damascus. Now Damascus is an ancient city. Damascus, much further north in the country of what is today Syria. It was Syria then as well, generally. Uh, But you have Damascus in Syria. So boy, they really did accomplish their goal. Now I want you to notice that Abram... The Hebrew was descended from Eber. And most people, most students of the Bible believe that uh, the term Hebrew comes from the sons of Eber, Hebrew. And this includes many peoples, not just the descendants of Abraham, uh, but many other peoples. And uh, Eber lived during the time of Nimrod when the Tower of Babel took place. But interestingly enough, he didn't die until about four years after Abram, Abraham, four years after. So Eber lived all the way from the time of the Tower of Babel, all the way after Abram's life had ended, four years after Abram. So there are these individuals around that are still known. And since he was more than likely at this point one of the patriarchs that people knew, uh, they're called the Hebrews because they were descended from Eber. So this helps us to see what was going on in the area. Okay, so that's a lot of information. That sets the stage for what is really the more important study today, the application is there, but this is really what we want to focus in on today. Let's take a look at this next portion of scripture, 
Uh, I would like to read uh, most of it, if not all of it, so that we can uh, understand what happened here. In verse 17, after Abram returned from defeating Ketulamur and the kings uh, allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shiva. That is the king's valley. And then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was a priest of God most high. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. So Abram didn't do this alone. He did this with the other uh, Canaanites that were aligned with him. All right? So that we know. Okay. The first thing I want to point out, and it's a great application, Abram refused to accept anything from Bera, the king of Sodom. He refused to accept anything from this man. See, Bera came to Abram to negotiate the release and the return of his people. Clearly, he hadn't been taken captive. So he offered all of his stolen possessions as payment for the rescue of his people, which makes sense, would have been the, the, the appropriate and proper thing to do. But this generous, and it was a generous offer, this generous offer was refused by Abram, who gave all the glory to God. Now, he had taken an oath to the Lord to take nothing from the king of Sodom, and he wanted nothing to do with this wicked king or his people. He accepted just the food that they had eaten, because obviously they went and they rescued these people. Now they have to carry all those goods back. And they needed food for the journey, so they ate some of the food that had been recovered. So they said, well, obviously we already ate that, uh, but everything else were given back. And, of course, he offered three shares to the Amorites that had accompanied him. It's so important that we see that in the world, though we are in the world, not of it, that we don't look to share in the things that the world has. The world has great riches, and we're blessed when God prospers us and we have riches. Now, you can be very successful, and you can have a business, and God will bless that business. I believe he does, and he'll bless your work. It's not what we're talking about. What's happening here is Abram is choosing not to put himself in a place where he can be indebted to or connected to the world, and in this case, the king of Sodom. He knew they were wicked people, and he didn't want to be connected to them. Now, in the New Testament, Paul talks about light not having fellowship with darkness. And he talks about the fact that we shouldn't be unequally yoked. Many people look at that, and they say, well, that means that a a Christian shouldn't marry or be involved in a romantic relationship with an unbeliever. And it's true, but it's so much broader than that. For example, going into business as a business owner with someone who is not a Christian— That will probably not end well. Now listen, I'm not telling anyone else how to live, but the New Testament talks about not being unequally yoked. Yoked means you're connected to. That means you can't separate yourself from. So it could mean marriage, it could mean business, it could mean a lot of things. Purchasing property, investing. 
If you're in a very difficult situation, that is, if you try to separate from the situation, it becomes difficult. I'm not talking about buying shares in a company, but you're a business owner and you're connected to someone who's ungodly. Believe me when I say it becomes difficult to manage that relationship. Actually, it can become extremely difficult. So Abram wisely says, you know, no offense, I just don't want anything to do with you. Most people would be offended by that. I think this guy was just happy that he didn't have to pay Abram. But when you see opportunities to connect with people spiritually, take them. When you see opportunities to connect with people in the world materially or in a business way or emotionally or relationally, you have to be very, very careful. Friendship with the world is one thing. Fellowship with the world is another I'm making that distinction because I want to be a friend to sinners. Jesus is a friend to sinners. But we know that light cannot have fellowship with darkness. So, again, this is a very difficult line to draw. But Abram understood something. If you become indebted to a wicked person, then you find it very difficult to separate from them later on. So he made a very clear distinction I'm not going to take anything from you. I don't want to be connected with you. I I don't want to be an ally. I I did what I did to get my nephew back, and that's all good, but but I won't take even a thread from you. So I think you can deliver that message in a loving way, but I think you have to be very careful, especially with family members who are are ungodly. Uh, Obviously, we don't want to divorce ourselves from our family, but we have to be careful. And, and I can sit here and tell you, you know, line by line what you should and shouldn't do, but I would be wrong. I'm not the Holy Spirit. Abram understood he needed to draw this line. Are you even drawing lines? I'm not telling you how to draw them, but do you draw lines between you and the wickedness of the world, the culture? Are there things you get involved in that you shouldn't? Or are there things that you don't get involved in because you know they're wrong? We can love people, but we can't be connected to the wickedness of this world. So you need to really pray and ask God to help you, give you the Holy Spirit so you'll know, when am I crossing the line? And when am I not where you've called me to be, to be a godly influence in the world? It is a lifetime challenge, and you will spend the rest of your life perhaps getting it wrong and getting it right on occasion, but you have to be sensitive to the Spirit. And I think that there's the bigger mistake sometimes is in the church to say that person's a worldling and we want nothing to do with them. That perhaps is the the worst mistake. Like, for example, what if Abram had not gotten involved at all? What if he just said, well, it's not my problem. I'm not going to get involved. Lot chose to live there. Let him suffer the fate of the people of the plains. Well, first of all, that's not very loving, right? And that's not what God had for him. He did need to get involved. He got involved. Clearly, he got involved. And listen, if you're someone like Lot that spends time in the wickedness of the world and you make mistakes and we've all been there, isn't God so good that he raises up others to deliver us and many times saves us from the bad mistakes we make? Amen? And so God used Abram to bless and deliver Lot. I think it clearly would have been wrong for Abram to say, not my problem. So he got involved. But at the end of that... Once he had accomplished his goal, he refused to get further entrenched in the world and its ways. So I know that that is a great challenge. This is your homework for the rest of your life. You have got to really pray your way through 
What things do I get involved in? When do I get involved? And when do I not get involved? And me, myself, as your pastor, I'm not going to be able to tell you when and when not. Unless it's a matter of sin and it's very, very clear. I am not equipped nor am I called to make that distinction for you. You need to pray your way through that. Now, if you're thinking of murdering someone or committing adultery, I'll say very clearly the Bible says thou shalt not commit murder and not commit adultery. So I can say that because that's the word of God. But if you're thinking about going into business and one of your partners is a very ungodly person who lives a lifestyle counter to the word of God, I can't sit here and distinctly tell you that you shouldn't, but I can tell you what the word of God says about being unequally yoked. You're never going to be able to have fellowship with that person. You need to be careful. And I would, in those cases, err on the side of caution. Okay, so that's on you. You've got to make those decisions. That's what it means to be a thinking, rational person, a believer in Christ who's called upon to pray their way through these big decisions. And there are many you will have to make. So the other person we want to talk to, and we'll close with this, we want to talk about Melchizedek, who is the king of Salem. Now, there's a lot in the Bible written on this, and when I studied the book of Hebrews with you guys over the years, we've talked about this from chapter 7 in very great detail. I'm going to give you probably just enough information to uh, motivate you to maybe go online or do your own study in the book of Hebrews. But bless you. And I am going to try to encourage you to do a little bit more study, but here's what we do know. Abram gave a tenth, or a tithe. By the way, that's what the word tithe means. It means a tenth. You can't tithe 8%. You can only tithe a tenth because that's what the word means. So Abram gave, and by the way, I, I see tithing as an Old Testament principle. I see giving as the New Testament principle. I don't, I don't tithe. I don't want to limit what I give by 10%. So I give because you can give as the Lord leads. Amen? So anyway, tithing. He gives a tenth of everything to Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Now Melchizedek. He came to Abram to bless him and to praise and worship the Lord. And uh, Hebrews chapter 7 is our cross-reference this morning. He was the king of Salem. Now, there's some controversy about this, but we believe this is the first recorded name of the city of Jerusalem, the city of peace, Salem, Jerusalem, Salem. Salem must have remained neutral in the recent conflict between the nine kings. Jerusalem is a very difficult city to take. History has taught us that throughout the centuries, millennia. But the Amorites and the Hittites ruled over this city for hundreds of years, according to the book of Joshua. And after the conquest, it became a city within the territory of Benjamin. The Jebusites lived there until David drove them out. David drove them out. So that's like, you know, somewhere around a thousand years before Christ. So a long time in the future. Now, this Melchizedek was a priest of God Most High. We're told he was a priest of God Most High. And this is before the priesthood was established through Aaron and the law that Moses gave. So there were priests of God Most High before the priesthood. Evidently, there were other worshipers of the true and the living God in Canaan other than Abram. We tend to think Abram was the only one. No, Abram came out of a pagan family from Ur of the Chaldeans, but, but there were other worshipers of God alive at that time. Melchizedek is one of them. Before Moses, sacrifices were offered, even going back to the time of the garden. Sacrifices were offered by the heads of families. And the priest of each family generally was the oldest living man in the paternal line. So the eldest, 
would be the priest until he passed, and then it would move to the next eldest in their ancestry. Ancient families became tribes, and so priests became priestly kings. So here's a man who's both a priest and a king. It fits with all that we know about history in this area at this time, and it makes sense. Now, Hebrew tradition, that is the Jews, believe that this was Shem, the son of Noah, who was still alive at this time. I mentioned that Eber was still alive. He was a descendant of Shem, but Shem was still alive at this time. He would have been the eldest of all of the patriarchs in the ancestry of uh, Abram. And the interesting thing here is that he's a son of Noah, so we know he was a godly man, so perhaps. Uh, In fact, I've mentioned this before, and and I'm always looking to make this point, and I don't want to overmake it, but listen, Noah's father was Lamech. He was born 56 years before Adam died. That means for 56 years, Lamech could have interacted with Adam. And this, of course, before the flood. Noah's son Shem was still alive until Abraham was 150 years old. At this point, he's not 150 years old. He's about half that. So the the creation, the creation account of Genesis was communicated directly through Lamech. So Adam to Noah through Lamech. Just three individuals involved in the communication of everything that takes place in, the, in Genesis that we consider to be uh, pre-recorded history. You know, we, we look at it as history. Some people say that it's uh, before history was recorded. No, we have the history because God is faithful to his word. Amen? To give it to us. So Shem died only 25 years before Abraham died. So here you have this man Shem, and this is why the Jews believe Melchizedek may have been actually Shem. So the flood, we talked about creation being communicated from Adam to Noah through one person, Lamech, Noah's father. But Shem, who is uh, the great-grandson of, or Shem's great-grandson, Eber, outlived Abraham by four years. I mentioned that already. So you have these elder men, patriarchs, living these many, many great lifespans, So that there's no question about what happened in the past because the people who witnessed it saw it. In fact, the flood was communicated directly from Shem to Abraham and even to Isaac. So if you wanted to know what happened at the Tower of Babel, or you wanted to know what was it like going through the flood, you could have a conversation with Shem. Very important to know that that's why we can trust the word of God as history. Amen? I point those things out because I'm a student of history, and it helps me to rely on God's word, knowing that it was communicated properly and correctly from times of ancient patriarchs until today. So this explains why Abram's descendants were called Hebrews or Hebrews, because again, Eber outlived Abram by four years, meaning that they would not have been called the Abramites, they would have been called the Hebrews. Okay, so... This man, Melchizedek, blessed Abram, and Abram gave him a tenth of what they had recovered from the, from, from the four kings. Now, he received that tithe. Abram wouldn't receive anything, but a tenth of what they recovered did go to this man. There is a tithe that Abram evidently knew who he was, and he honored his position before God as the priest of God Most High. Abram considered it appropriate to tithe to the Lord through his representative, who at that time was Shem, or Melchizedek might have been Shem. 
depending on how you feel about that. Okay, here's what's important. There's a symbolism that Paul, or the writer of the book of Hebrews, talks about in chapter 7. There is a symbolism that you need to be aware of, and I find this fascinating. And and this isn't a stretch because literally Hebrews 7 tells us these things. First of all, Melchizedek is so much like Jesus Christ, the Son of God. His name literally, Melchizedek, literally means king of righteousness. Referring to God in Jeremiah chapter 23 as the king of righteousness. His title, the king of Salem, literally means king of peace. King of peace. Another title given to God through Isaiah. He was introduced in this book of Genesis without any human parentage. Now, of course, if it was Shem, we know who he was, but here we're not told. No human parentage, no priestly genealogy, neither his beginning nor his end is recorded in the scriptures. So he just sort of appears, and uh, this has caused the, the students of the Old Testament, and specifically the writer of the book of Hebrews, and many other Jews, to see in this a type of God himself, and specifically the Son of God. His position as priest has never ceased, according to the book of Hebrews, nor has it been replaced, according to the Psalms. He even brought out bread and wine when he sought out Abram, which to me is pretty coincidental. You see, he may even be one of the pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus. It may not be Shem at all. I don't know. We don't know. But the point is, it's a type of Jesus Christ. Now, in all of these ways, he is, at at the very least, very symbolic of Jesus Christ, who is our priestly king. Amen? Now, the Jews, when they studied the scriptures, they believed that any passage of scripture had four meanings. I'm going to go through this briefly. There were four ways that they interpreted the scripture. First was called the Peshat, and it was the literal or factual meaning of the text. I always start there. The literal and factual meaning of the text. What does it mean? What is it saying? But there was also, in addition to the Peshat, the Ramas, and this is the suggested meaning. Because many times it's not just as simple as what it says, but more importantly, what does it mean? There are phrases, idiomatic phrases, that literally mean one thing, but figuratively suggest something else. Like, don't look a gift horse in the mouth, you know, right? So there, there are things that we say, do we really mean look, having anything to do with horses? Or what are we really trying to say? Well, sometimes there's a literal meaning, but oftentimes there's also a suggested meaning. So the Jews would study the Peshat and the Ramaz, But then they would get to the third. It was called the Darush, and it was the meaning arrived after long and careful investigation. And that's what pastors are supposed to do. That's what all of us are supposed to do. Look at what it means, or look at what it says. Look at what it means, and then think about it. Meditate on it. Consider the application or the ramification of what's being said. So there's more than just what it says and what it means. Finally, in addition to the Peshat Ramaz Darush, there is the Sad. And the Sad is the allegorical or inner meaning. That is, what is it saying without saying it? And the Jews hold this as the most important way to interpret Scripture. So when they look at Melchizedek using the Sad approach, you see past the individual, whereas maybe we look at what it means, what it, what it says, 
But we look past that, and with the sod, there's an allegorical or inner meaning interpreted by the author of the book of Hebrews. And the Jews would argue not only from what Scripture said, but they would argue from what it didn't say. So the fact that it didn't say who his father or ancestors were, they use as an allegorical application or interpretation to point to God himself. So that's what I'm talking about. So this is the way they interpreted Scripture. Now, there are times, I think, where you can get a little carried away and make too many allegorical or inner meanings. A.W. Pink is a fascinating commentator. Sometimes I read his stuff, and it's really dead on. And then sometimes I read it, and I'm like, I don't see that. It's a little much for me. But understand, this is the way the Jews would study the Word of God in these four ways. For those of you taking notes, Peshat, Ramaz, Terush, and Sad. Okay. As we close, the author of the book of Hebrews makes it clear that Melchizedek was great. He's greater than Abram. He's the father of the Jews. Abram's the father of the Jews, and yet Melchizedek is greater than the father of the Jews who entered God's promises. Notice he received a tithe of the plunder from this great patriarch. He is the greater person, blessed Uh, He's blessing Abram, the lesser person. And and the book of Hebrews makes this clear. A greater person would bless a lesser person. By that I mean, in the Spanish culture, this uh, concept called the bendición, which means the blessing. But it's a little bit more than just blessing someone. Generally, if you're visiting a grandmother or a parent and you're leaving the home, uh, they will oftentimes pronounce a blessing on you as you leave. And it is appropriate for the elder to bless the younger. It's not a, I mean, you can pray for your parents and your grandparents, but the bendición is something that the grandmother or grandfather or a person that is older than you will offer as a way of a blessing. And uh, that was true in this culture as well. By the way, this man Melchizedek is even greater than Levi, uh, who entered God's priesthood, uh, the descendants of Levi, uh, over 600 years later. So this priesthood is the first priesthood, and the Levitical priesthood under the law came 600 years later. He, this man Melchizedek, is a priest who's appointed to collect tithes, yet not by the law, not by the Levitical law. And the order of Levi is an earthly priesthood performed by mere mortals. So the order of Melchizedek, you'll hear this again in the book of Hebrews, is an eternal priesthood performed by an immortal. That's what the book of Hebrews communicates. And of course, Levi, as Abraham's descendant, is just as inferior to Melchizedek as Abram is. So who is Melchizedek? Well, according to the interpretive methods, he may have been Shem. He may not have been. Uh, he, he very well may have been a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God. Or maybe he just points to, in allegorical form, Jesus, the Son of God. I think probably to some degree... Much of that is true. We know the book of Hebrews makes that case. But what is important is that Jesus, who is the king of righteousness, the king of peace, who clearly is the son of God, neither has a beginning nor an end, is a priest, always has been a priest, and that priesthood has never ceased, who offered bread and wine as a memorial to his great sacrifice on our behalf. We have to understand that Melchizedek is, at the very least, a type of Jesus. But Jesus is our eternal high priest. And according to the book of Hebrews, in the order 
of Melchizedek. So we've learned a lot, but what's really important, and I want to close with, is to consider your life, your decisions, specifically as you get involved in worldly relationships and worldly situations. But did you notice something? Abram knew where to draw the line, but what did he do after he drew the line? He drew the line with the king of Sodom, but he didn't with Melchizedek. That is to say, he honored God with his life. And here's the problem. There are many people within the church who are willing to separate from the world, and I think that's a good and noble thing. But are they also honoring God with their lives? Because it's just as important. You can walk around saying, well, I want nothing to do with the world, the world, the world, the world. But are you truly worshiping God? Because that's what Melchizedek came to do, to worship God and to receive Abram's worship to God. Not for himself necessarily, but to God. So let me give you another challenge. You got two. You ready? Homework for the rest of your life. (laughs) You hated it in school, but hey, here it is. Number one, pray a lot about how to separate from the world when you need to and how to engage with the world as you need to. But ask yourself this question, am I worshiping God? I can tell you something. You can worship God without coming to church. I know you can. You worship the God through fellowship and through studying the word and through giving, and you worship the Lord in so many wonderful ways. But probably the easiest way to facilitate a time of worship corporately again, not alone, but corporately, is to show up in church at 9 o'clock when we start our worship service. Now, I know it was a rainy day, but even if it was sunny, there's some of you guys who just need a little kick. And I'm going to give you that little kick because I love you. You ready? We're in a new year. I don't believe in resolutions. I don't think that that's the most important thing to talk about on a Sunday morning, but here's an idea. What if you came to church on time? What might happen? It's an opportunity to worship the Lord. You see, we worship the Lord throughout our service, but we worship the Lord in song. And, and I'll tell you what, it's like my favorite part of the service. I really love it. But some of you guys miss that. Not to make you feel bad. This isn't to make you feel guilty. I wrote your names down. I was standing in the back. I'll send you emails this week. You know I'm kidding, of course. Um, I just want to lovingly encourage you because you know what? You're kind of missing out a little bit, all right? So... That's from my heart, not the Lord. Maybe the Holy Spirit. Maybe not. You pray about it. If God is calling you to be here 15 minutes late, who am I to argue? Just pray about that. Worshiping the Lord and separating from the world. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up to close us out. Great encouragements this morning. Lord Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenges. You never challenge us in a way that's condemning, maybe convicting, but not condemning. Lord, you give us an understanding of your word that we might live according to your word, that we might be blessed according to your word. And we ask that you would do that very work in our hearts, by faith, in Jesus' name. Amen.